0: Hey everybody, welcome on to another episode of the Two Birth and Beyond podcast. It's Jesse Mundell and Anita Lambert. We are excited for this episode today. We are going to do our first Q&A episode, so a big roundup of your questions, and we will try to answer them to the best of our ability and give you some sound and structured advice around them. We're going to be talking about a whole range of topics today, pelvic organ prolapse, diastasis recti, exercising in pregnancy, postpartum. So let's get right into it. So our first question today was from Suzanne. And she asks, I would like to hear about a second pregnancy after healed prolapse. When my OB confirmed my prolapse diagnosis, she said I would probably need to deliver by C-section for a future pregnancy instead of vaginal. Anita, what do you have to say to this one? So I would first
1: start saying where there is no kind of right or wrong answer to this one. It's very individual. Um, I haven't come across any evidence saying that you need to um, give birth by cesarean birth the next time around. Um, And as a reminder, too, that 50% of women at some point in their life have a degree of prolapse. So if every person was told that they need to give birth by cesarean birth, that percentage would be way higher than it is. Um, And I would say clinically, I've seen quite a few women go into subsequent births with a prolapse and they go into birth, we prepare for everything. And then when we reassess after, typically what I see is um, for some, it may remain the same, but if even some somewhere it actually is better, like I, it sounds a little odd to think of it that way, but, and I I don't have a complete explanation for why, but I think for some, it almost going through that birth, almost resets their system And they did all this rehab going into birth and then postpartum they're doing all this rehab, possibly sooner than a previous birth. And so perhaps their muscles are just being able to gain strength earlier, sooner, um, how birth went, maybe there was just less pressure on the organs. There's just so many reasons why this could happen. But why I like to share this is just for Suzanne and anyone else wondering is, um, that there's going into birth with a prolapse does not mean that afterwards it's necessarily going to get worse. Cause I think that's the big, um, concern as well. If you give birth again, vaginally, it's just going to get worse. um, and it doesn't necessarily happen that way. Um, and I think it's good in terms of too, when Suzanne mentioned it, she mentioned she'd like to hear about a second pregnancy after a healed prolapse. And there's so many variations on healing. So especially if you've gone through rehab, and if healing for her means symptom free, or perhaps the stage or the the degree of prolapse has lifted, um, then again, going into a vaginal birth doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to get worse again, especially if you're doing all that prehab before birth and rehab postpartum. Do you have anything to add, Jess, or if you've had clients go through this?
0: Yeah, I would say this is exactly the experience of many of my clients who were a bit nervous going into a subsequent pregnancy, a subsequent vaginal birth with prolapse, and then exactly what you're saying with your clinical experience, they did not experience worsening of their prolapse symptoms or grade afterwards. That has been a really common story for my clients. I know in a couple of cases, some of my moms with prolapse have chose to deliver by C-section, have a C-section birth with their next baby simply for more psychological and mindset reasons about it they were really nervous about going into labor and pushing with their prolapse and thought it would be really distracting for them so perhaps they had a bit more fear about that prolapse going into it fear about the prolapse worsening so for them they thought they would feel more comfortable with the c-section but completely agree with what you are saying there's really for so many people it's not Uh, an inherent necessary thing that you must have a c-section or you should have a c-section for your next birth if you have prolapse because it is automatically going to get worse doesn't seem to be the case so i think it's a great point you brought up Jess,
1: about the fear around the pushing because that generally seems to be the part of birth that most people are concerned about in terms of prolapse um and so in part of preparation if you are thinking of having a vaginal birth Definitely working through um, and learning about spontaneous versus coach pushing and having an honest conversation with your birth team as well. If spontaneous spontaneous pushing is something you want to do, because that could potentially put less pressure on the organs um, and change the amount of force you're putting into things and how long you're pushing for. So that can definitely be something and even positions that you're pushing in. Um, And again, that being said, how Jess has had clients uh, who've had, who've chosen a cesarean birth, and there's nothing wrong with that either. So I think it's really finding out what works for you and just gathering information from both sides. So then you can make an informed decision that works best for you and works best for baby.
0: Perfect. So next question is from Lindsay and she asks, I would like to know if it is possible to return to running after a prolapse diagnosis. So for many people, the answer is absolutely yes. Of course, for lots of my clients with prolapse, they are returning to running more high-impact sprint-type training if they want to and when that's appropriate for their body and minds to do so. I think this is another myth that we tend to hear about pelvic organ prolapse if you have a prolapse you should do no high impact exercise ever again for the rest of your life and it simply is not true for all bodies we cannot make this a blanket statement and like I said I'm seeing lots of my moms successfully and effectively return to running with prolapse while they are managing their symptoms managing the grade of that prolapse and doing really well with it for some people it does not feel right in their bodies And that is okay too. But yeah, it's absolutely possible to return to running after a prolapse diagnosis. We just follow a series of steps to get us there in terms of the management and treatment of that prolapse and then the return to more loading and high impact on the body.
1: I think it's good to bring up too that everyone will get back to that if that's a goal um, of yours to get back to running with prolapse is everyone will have a different journey to get there um depends on degree of prolapse and you know do you have one prolapse or do you have various organs prolapse and just your symptoms so jess was talking about like working on strength core pelvic floor strength but also learning how to distribute or your intra-abdominal pressure during high impact such as running and i do have some clients too that decide to get a pessary or that might be my recommendation as a public physio to have a pessary which generally is made out of silicone and it's um there's so many different shapes but one of the traditional shapes is like a circle they call it like a dish um and you insert it so it just helps to give some support to um to your bladder or to your uterus um specifically it may just be during your running during high impact activities just to give you a little bit more support so i think if that's something you really want to do it's talking to the physio or the fitness professional or both that you're working with so that they can help guide you to get back to it. The big thing is getting back to it symptom free. So you feel good while you're doing it and managing your symptoms and just noticing if things need to be tweaked along the way could be tweaking your technique so that things feel better. Um, so there's a lot of different factors involved, but I agree with Jess that it, uh, it shouldn't be a barrier. So if you really want to run, and that's your goal with a the prolapse, then those around you should be helping you get there. Um, so our next question um, is: I'm hoping to hear your take on exercise, especially weight-bearing exercise for women who have a pelvic organ prolapse. I have a relatively minor cystocele, and I'm eight months postpartum. I've worked with a pelvic floor physio who has cleared me for light exercise. I'm currently walking and doing yoga. I'm just starting to want to do more, but safely. Any thoughts and any tips you could share would be much appreciated. So I think this, we've obviously gotten a lot of prolapse questions for this Q and A, and I think this is a really good one to bring up. Something I wanted that I kind of stood out for me from this question is the word safely. And I know Jess and I both feel very similar about this word, that that's gonna mean something different for everyone. So I don't even really like using that language um, with clients or even with the education I do, just because there's no one size fits all. Um, Unfortunately, it'd be great if there was, it would make things a lot easier, but there just isn't. So what might feel symptom free to one person isn't symptom free to another person. So you really got to gauge what that looks like for you. Um, And also even in terms of like, what goals do you have? So, For example, you might have someone recommend swimming to you because they feel that that shouldn't put a lot of pressure in terms of your prolapse. But if you hate swimming, then there's really no point in working towards that because that's not the type of exercise you want to do. So I would say in terms of if you're still working with that physio, just to make a list of activities that you enjoy doing or you think you would enjoy doing. And then work with your physio in terms of they should be working with you to get you back to various types of activities that you enjoy, and you'll work together to figure out how to do that symptom-free.
0: Perfect. I'll just speak to this from a strength training perspective, because this is what I specifically do the majority of my coaching on. But absolutely possible, again, like the running conversation with prolapse, it is so possible to get back to strength training exercise with prolapse. I get a lot of questions about, is it ever going to be possible for me to lift heavy weights again? And that is absolutely possible too. So I just want to make a note that definitely possible to be strength training with prolapse and getting back to heavier strength training if that's the direction this person wants to go in. Similar to that return to running approach, it is the same progressive loading that we would take into a strength training program with prolapse and we would gradually take the load up, modify the reps and the sets, modify the rest periods, but we do this in a fashion where it is progressive. So we start from a lower level, the loading is low, perhaps the volume is low. We see how the body responds to that, and there's a couple different reasons why we do that. First of all, we simply want to see how the actual tissues of the body respond, but secondly, For many people, they will respond well to that and it builds their confidence muscle. So they feel really, as this person said, quote unquote, safe. So they feel safe in that environment. They feel confident in that environment. And that is so important to me as the coach, but for them as the exerciser as well. So if we can build this confidence as we go along, that seems to be a successful approach to getting back to more intense exercise. So our next question is from
1: Caitlin, and she asked, I'm interested in learning about the emotional healing from a traumatic birth experience or emotional preparation for birth after a rough first birth. And I think it's actually great to answer both of these questions because they will be similar um, in kind of how we talk about it. So I would definitely say there are definitely layers to this. Um, One of the things I would highly recommend is debriefing about your birth. And depending how long it's been since your birth, we've talked about this, I think in a previous episode that there are always charts um, on your birth. So whether you've had a midwife, there will be charts from them. If you had a doctor, an OB or a GP as your care provider, then the nurse and the doctor will have made notes as well. Um, So there should always be an option to go back and speak with your care provider to debrief. Um, Or if you had a doula debriefing with your doula Um, But sometimes this is far down the road and maybe that's not an option or maybe this isn't something you actually want to do. It doesn't sit well with you to actually see them again. Um, I do recommend clients end up seeing, there's variation psychologist, psychotherapist, counselor. There's so many different amazing uh, professionals that can work through this in terms of they actually focus on birth trauma. I do recommend seeing a professional who does have the focus on birth trauma just because they'll have a different lens about what you're going through than a professional who isn't familiar with that. Um, So I would recommend kind of both of those options or if the debrief isn't possible, then seeing another professional. Um, And that can help with the emotional side. But then also I feel like, The physical side also affects the emotional side. So if there's still physical aspects to heal, whether you had a cesarean birth or a vaginal birth, um, to be working on those at the same time. And often the emotional healing, physical healing actually go together. So whether it's working with a pelvic physio or another health professional, working on the physical side, I recommend doing that as well. and it's the same thing whether you're healing from a birth, but I would also do these things when you're preparing for another birth, whether you're pregnant or you're thinking of getting pregnant, because um, that can also affect your pregnancy experience too. Um, and I know Jess, you've shared a bit about your own um, birth experience after steel. Do you have anything to add to that or even things that you use after steel to heal and even going into your next birth, like things that you're working on
0: yeah I love this conversation so much and it can be so important for so many of us so I think that what I did postpartum time number one after my daughter's birth was debriefed about it a ton like Anita was saying talked about it a lot wrote about it a lot really tried to figure out my own feelings around it and why there was why I was experiencing fear shame, and guilt, and these big let-down feelings that I was having after that experience. I did seek counseling for that as well, and that was so, so helpful. So everything that Anita was saying, so spot on with this. If you can find a professional who does deal, um, works in that birth reading or debriefing birth work, it can be really a healing experience. So highly recommend What I found so interesting when I got pregnant this time, second time around, was that I felt like I was at peace with that birth experience and then when I got pregnant, it was this rush of discomfort for me. So I just felt so dreadful about having to go back through a birth and postpartum recovery time. And I was expecting that to a degree, but not with such discomfort, I don't think. Like, it was really hard for me to relive those feelings again and to imagine having to feel that same way again, even though I know that there's... No reason why I need to or I have to feel the same way again that I did postpartum time number one. It really is just so clear in my memory about how I felt still after that first birth that it's all I can, it was all I could really imagine. So biggest things for me this time in this pregnancy and prepping for birth number two is checking my mindset about birth in a big way. So what do I believe about birth? Why do I believe that? Uh, how, How do I want to feel during that experience? And how do I want to feel after the birth experience? Those are things that I'm just thinking of often during this time. So someone mentioned to me the other day that they're thinking about their next birth in terms of birth, principles instead of a birth plan so they have principles around how they want to feel but the plan itself is so open and I think that that is such a cool way of thinking about it and it's something that I'm taking with me into this time around too. First time around I just had very strong attachments to how I wanted things to go and they didn't go that way at all and there was a lot of processing that needed to be done around it. This time around I feel like I... I'm just really in a place where however it goes will be okay. And I know that I will be okay eventually, maybe right away, maybe further on down the road, but I have trust in that. And I don't have strong attachments to how I need it to go. And for me, that is the most important thing this time around. So I don't have strong attachments to how each step needs to go or about how this baby needs to be birthed. I really just want to feel... A certain way during and afterwards
1: and I think that's a great point to bring up that last sentence that you said Jess all of it was amazing but that last sentence really stuck out of the knowing how you want to feel during and after because I think a big part is that what I'm hearing you say is that you want to be open to the different possibilities how it's gonna go um, but I also think you've done a lot of education and research around birth and to know the options. So from what I'm guessing, you're not necessarily saying go into birth without knowing anything about how anything could play out, knowing there are different options, but that during it, it's more you're wanting to feel actively a part of your birth um, and then part of the decision making, but you're not tied to certain decisions but that you can actually be part of it
0: Mm -hmm. exactly Exactly. yeah Yeah. for sure last time I was just so set on it wanting to be a vaginal birth at home and I was so I was so tied to it being unmedicated I didn't want to go to the hospital I didn't want to have an epidural, I was really scared about the possibility of a c-section, and this time I'm like, you know what, it's going to be fine if all those things happen, or if they don't happen too. All of it is going to be fine, and I truly trust and believe that, whereas last time, that what it would not have even entered into my mindset or my thinking that those things would have been okay. And then when all of those things happened, it was not okay. So, so much processing to do postpartum and I love that this person mentioned about the emotional preparation for birth after a rough first go around because some of my clients have experienced some of these traumatic feelings resurface in their subsequent labor or birth so I love that you are, yeah, wanting to tackle it going into this next time. I think that's really, really great. Okay, from Amanda, what is the biggest advice for teaching a large group of prenatal fitness classes? So I used to teach large group prenatal fitness classes and what I will say is I think that some coaches um, overthink this a little bit or they try to make it a bit more complicated in their minds than it needs to be. It can feel a little bit scary to have a lot of different pregnant bodies in your class who are at different stages of pregnancy or who are at different levels of fitness, really what I'll say is have your plan set out in advance, know the class that you're going to be teaching really well and then have modifications for each exercise prepped and ready to go. So of course there's gonna be thinking on the fly that needs to happen while you're coaching during that class. But if you have modifications in mind written down for each exercise that you're going to be coaching through, it just makes it way less stressful. So have your plan. Know that these classes that you're teaching, prenatal, postnatal, when you have bodies at different stages, when you have fitness levels of different stages, it is going to be work. You're probably going to be sweating your butt off trying to coach all these different bodies at different stages. But it's absolutely possible to do. I just think having those modifications in mind is so key. Set up your space really well. So, for me, what I liked best was having stations that we would move through. I'm not a big fan of using timed exercises as stations, so I'm not saying that you can never use that. For me, I just don't love do this exercise for 30 seconds. We're going to do each exercise for 30 seconds and move on. I really prefer more rep-based coaching. But try to have exercises that you think are going to match up decently well in, how, in terms of how many reps or how long a person is going to be at a station so people are moving quite well through the circuit. Also have ideas in mind of what you could do, say, for an active recovery or a mobility drill between those exercise circuits if things are not moving that well with the pace, so people aren't just constantly standing around and they do have something to do by the time they get to uh, their next station. But again, biggest thing for me is have your modifications in mind, so you have, say, a more beginner, intermediate, advanced exercise for each exercise that you are planning in that class and go from there you can absolutely be coaching the same strategies or similar strategies in terms of the breathing the alignment how they're connecting to their core and pelvic floor in each exercise it's going to be similar for many bodies and again just modify the exercise itself for the client
1: i would say the the one piece of advice i have is more towards verbal cueing is i would say at the beginning of every class just to remind everyone who's there that everyone's body is different everyone's in a different place in pregnancy um, and how they feel in their pregnancy is different and how they feel that day is going to be different so just reminding them of going with what their body wants that day they don't have to complete everything they can modify things they may not even know till they're in an exercise they need to modify but just reminding them it's not a competition they don't have to keep up with other people um, within the class
0: yes love that Okay, from Amanda, how do you approach postpartum fitness for someone who is afraid of injury and hurting themselves? I love this question. This is something that comes up for my clients at times. I think it goes back to what we were speaking about in terms of one of our prolapse questions and how we want to start slow, start with low level, low load, low volume. Exercises where the client feels confident, pain-free, symptom-free, and progress from there. So I think it really is, this is such a mindset-based question. So the person is really afraid of injuring themselves during their exercise. So they are afraid of trying. They are afraid of progressing. So we need to help this person feel as comfortable and confident doing whatever it might be that they're doing and go from there.
1: I would totally agree with everything Jess said. I think confidence is the biggest part in education um, around this specific exercise. Um, Our next question is from Rachel, and she asked, is the ultimate goal always to get the abs completely back together after diastasis, or is that only possible with some women? If it's a small gap but tension is good, do you accept that or still aim to bring them closer? I just find most women expect them to become hundred percent back together and I think this is a really good question and I know we touched on this in our diastasis episode but the fact of Jess and I both talk about tension as being more important than the actual width because I do have clients that don't like the abs don't fully come back together they may may still have one or two sometimes three finger widths but their tension is awesome and that's really what makes a difference in their function even the look of the abdomen in terms of that tension creates a different look than when you don't have tension. So I think it's a lot about just educating the women that you're working with to let them know, yeah, no, the goal isn't necessarily to bring them back together. And some women, Jess even talked about before she got pregnant with Steele, that you had some diastasis. So we don't, you may not even know, they may have had some before they even got pregnant. Um, So just to really focus with them, it's about tension, teaching them how to assess themselves so they can assess, you know, how tension is changing in their own body, I think is really important.
0: From Cassie, is it possible to have diastasis below the navel only or does the separation occur equally above, at and below the belly button? Yeah, this is a great question. Absolutely possible to have some separation only below the belly button or it could be just at the belly button or further above, closer to the sternum. Like Anita was just saying, for me going into pregnancy number one, I had some separation just below my belly button. And that is a common occurrence. For many people, say postpartum, it might be that they're having more or only some separation just above the belly button so absolutely it is possible that the separation will not occur equally along the linea alba it could be different at different points along that midline of the abdomen
1: yep i totally agree i would say most commonly i see if it is in one spot or kind of the the widest spot which we talked about tension is more important um, but just in terms of people are wondering width wise, I would say most commonly it's at the navel that I see it the widest, just because with, if it's to do with pregnancy, that tends to be where we grow the most, just in terms of circumference. So that tends to be clinically what I see, but I agree. And I, I would say it's actually not often that I see above, at, and below is exactly the same reading. Generally, it'll be different in all three spots and they tend to heal a little bit differently, a little different order. Um, it's not like they all change at the same time, so everybody is different. But I think that's a good thing to bring up that there is variations in how a diastasis actually presents. Next, we have a question also from Cassie. Any tips for assessing a client for diastasis who is carrying a higher amount of abdominal fat? I would say the biggest thing with this is practice, because the more you practice on different bodies this will become easier over time. The other thing too, to keep in mind is when you are assessing and if you're doing the traditional assessing on your back, having them do a head lift, make sure it's slow head lift so that you're getting a true reading of when the rectus start to approximate. Because yeah, I would say I do see clients who do have extra abdominal fat and it's actually, they don't have a diastasis. So I think sometimes there's an assumption when you see someone's abdominal, oh, they must have a diastasis. But I do not see a correlation at all with that. So I think it's important to practice on lots of bodies, get used to what it feels like on a lot of different bodies, and then you'll feel more confident assessing.
0: I actually think this is such a great question. and This was an eye opener for me as well, because most of the education I have seen about assessing diastasis and the education that I have put out on assessing diastasis has been done on bodies that are thin or medium size. So I really love this so much. I would say too, if I'm having a difficult time assessing or feeling for those rectus bellies, I will have someone come up higher into a crunch, higher than the normal head lift and do that a few times and then go back to just a head lift, get them even to hold the head lift and pulse a little bit just so I can try to feel for really anything or as much as possible. And I would also say that I love that point that you brought up, Anita, about just because there is more abdominal fat does not mean that there is a diastasis. And what I have found on some bodies as well is even my clients who are more petite, their structure is smaller, there tends to be say, a wider diastasis in many of those bodies, just depending on how their body is able to carry that baby. So really good reminder for ourselves as practitioners to not assume when we see a body in front of us about how that diastasis might be presenting. One more here from Cassie. What is the best strategy for rehabbing someone who has a hypertonic pelvic floor and is experiencing stress urinary incontinence and urge urinary incontinence? Should you avoid contracting the pelvic floor muscles? Should they still continue practicing contracting and relaxing? Anita, how do you approach this with your clients? Mm
1: -hmm. So as a pelvic floor physio, I would definitely if that's what I assess that the pelvic floor is hypertonic, I wouldn't be having them contract their pelvic floor. It's a lot of down training and teaching them how to actually relax their pelvic floor. If you picture doing a bicep curl, a hypertonic pelvic floor is basically, if you picture that you're almost at the full end of a contraction of a bicep curl, if you were to just contract more, you're gonna get this little tiny contraction, it's not functional, it's not actually that effective we need to release that bicep curl before you can do another one. So it's the same idea with the pelvic floor. So for this person, so for Cassie, if if it's that you're working um, with a client or if this is your situation um, and you haven't seen a pelvic health physiotherapist, I highly recommend if that's an option um, because they'll be able to give you more information specifically what's going on with the pelvic floor and cueing to actually help you release and relax the pelvic floor. And then once that's accomplished, um, and if they're, the symptoms tied to it, so stress urinary incontinence, urge urinary continence, that can equally happen with a hypertonic pelvic floor as a hypotonic pelvic floor. Because when the muscles are tight, how I was saying, they can't actually, they're not engaging efficiently. So when you do have your cough or sneeze or exercise, they're not able to create that support and closing off the urethra. Um same with urge. I usually find that urge urinary incontinence actually is generally hypertonic pelvic floor. It's very rare that it's hypotonic or lacks muscles. Um, and there's a lot of actually brain bladder connection training, as I call it, um, for the urge urinary incontinence. So it's a lot of what we end up telling our brain um, when we get that strong urge to go to the bathroom. So I would say first they need to learn to downtrain and release. If they can't or if this is cassie's situation and you can't see a public health physio jess has a lot and there's a lot of great um exercises out there for fitness professionals to use that just using cueing and certain positions there's a lot of great kind of yoga postures like child's pose add your flower bloom breath all these different things can actually help release and relax the pelvic floor so if seeing a pelvic physio isn't an option Then I would say using these strategies either on yourself or if this is with a client of yours and then see how their symptoms change. That's
0: perfect. I'll just give one note about specific exercise strategy and training in this question. For clients who are experiencing this type of situation, say, for example, we are doing a goblet squat. And often we think about wanting to or needing to contract the pelvic floor as we stand from bottom to top of the squat. In these situations, for some people, I will have them completely forget about that and simply focus just on the breath itself. So we'll focus on, say, inhale down into that squat position, exhaling as we go to stand from bottom to top. This is totally my experience too of having a hypertonic pelvic floor and if I think about engaging or lifting or tightening my pelvic floor in every rep of a workout, I get way too in my head about it and then ramp my symptoms up from there. So for some people, I'll have them completely forget about that need to be connecting to their pelvic floor on every breath, on every rep and simply just taking the attention to the breath itself and that can be an effective strategy for some.
1: So our next question is from Barbie. And she asks, what should you do if Kegels hurt? Are there any alternatives? And so this actually ties back into the question we just talked about. So there could be various reasons why Kegels hurt. So it could be a sign that the pelvic floor muscles are actually hypertonic, so that they're actually tense. And then by trying to tense, like create more tension there, it's just creating pain. The other side to it could be there are a lot of times that... When I, as a public physio, when I can assess internally, a lot of time we're really great at compensating with other muscles. So a lot of women feel like, okay, I'm gauging my pelvic floor, but instead they're actually just squeezing their glutes, glutes, so doing like a butt clench, or their inner thighs are doing it, or they're really clenching their abs. And in the end, their pelvic floor actually isn't doing anything. In this situation, it could be, maybe there's compensations going on, creating a, a pull, which is creating a pain um, response when they're trying to engage so it's one of those things again if it's possible see a public health physio to make sure you're actually engaging properly and if you should even be engaging that perhaps you should be doing down training or releasing the pelvic floor before actually doing any kegel or strengthening exercises
0: okay very last question and this is such an interesting one from marissa is pain during arousal but not intercourse a sign of pelvic floor injury it's a deep achy pain no real pain around the vulva or elsewhere but it can get pretty intense hmm
1: so there can be various reasons why this may be happening so it's good that they mentioned there is no real pain on with intercourse but I'd still say it's worth checking if there's tension in various areas in the pelvic floor. So it may not be pain during intercourse, but it could be during arousal when there's more kind of blood circulation happening that there could be tension in certain muscles contributing and especially the superficial. So there's three layers to our pelvic floor. So there's pelvic floor muscles around the opening of our vaginal canal or the introitus. So there's various layers there that a pelvic physio could initially assess. Maybe there's tension going on there or tension further in. Um, another side too is that it could actually be a vascular issue. So I won't go into too much detail about this, but because during arousal, again, increased blood flow to certain areas that I would say see in a pelvic physio first to assess the muscles, the connective tissue, but also externally. So we don't often think about, but the nerves that kind of supply our pelvic floor muscles, they come from our sacrum area. So an area at the very bottom of your back around the pelvis area. So having someone do what we call an orthopedic assessment, which should be happening anyways, if you see a pelvic physio, but having them test different nerves in the back with having you do different movements, testing different muscles may give some indication that perhaps there's something at that level going on that they can actually help with physio wise, just so that the nerve is getting, Basically, better better signals going to the pelvic floor, um, but they're also maybe reasoning to see a vascular specialist. So a pelvic physio could do a full assessment. They'll be able to gauge if you should be seen a specialist as well, and it would be a vascular specialist who works specifically with pelvic congestion in terms of symptoms. Um, so one who's familiar with working with the pelvis. So. Yeah, so because it is a big question, there's kind of a lot of detail that we could go into, but I think those are good points that there could be tension, there could be in terms of nerve supply, variations in the low back that may be limited for other reasons, um, or vascular issue um, with that. So all those definitely should be looked into.
0: Cool, fascinating. You're so Mm. smart. Okay, everybody, that is it for us today. We got tons of questions in, so if we did not get to your question today, we will get to it on the next episode Thank you so much for sending those in and at any time you can email us or send us a message on Instagram or pop into our Facebook group and let us know if there's anything you want to know. On the next episode, we are going to be talking about birth plans and birth preferences. We'll give you some more insight into how I am approaching this for birth number two. So that's it for today and we will see you next time.